So, as we come to the Word this morning, we are in John chapter 13, 31 to 35. The mark of the Master. What marks us as Jesus' disciples and His people. Hear then the Word of God. John 13, starting in 31. When He, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, then God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. And you will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I now say also to you, that where I am, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Pray with me. Father in heaven, this morning we gather as your church. We gather as your people. The people created by your death and resurrection and the outpouring of your spirit. The people that you have created by your own life-giving sacrifice. So, Father, we gather at your feet this morning to let you speak into our life, the life of our church, and into our lives as we seek to follow and to honor and to please and to bring glory to you. These things we come and ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a wide variety of people here this morning from a wide variety of backgrounds. We come from a variety of ethnic descent and uh, various races. We come from various parts of our country and culture. There's some here I know from out west. There's some here from up north. There's some here from down south. Maybe more of you than anything else. We come from a variety of backgrounds. I know enough about a lot of you to know some of you came from a Baptist background. Some came here from Lutheran. Some came here from Methodists. I know I my wife grew up Catholic. I come from uh, nominally Episcopalian, and then Pentecostal. We come with a lot of different tastes and preferences, a lot of different ways of thinking and doing. We come uh, as a great, diverse people. And the way that we love each other, the way that we are the church, defines us to the world, right? It defines us to the world, who we are. The way that we do this thing, the way that we are together as, as Christ's people defines us to the world. As His disciples, this love that Jesus says we are to have for each other is a great part of the beauty and the attractiveness of Christianity. It's a great part of the beauty and the glory of God. And it's interesting to see, even as I was studying this text this week and thinking about that last half and trying to understand even how the, what he says first ties in, this connection between his own glory and the glory of God and, and his people, the love that his people are supposed to have for each other. And he does start this passage as Judas goes out, and we pick up right where we left off last week, in Jude, or two weeks ago, when Judas goes out, and Jesus tells him what you're about to do, do it quickly. And Judas, it says, leaves a room, and he speaks of this triple glory. 
He uses the word glory five times in these two short verses. And there's this triple glory thing going on. Right in verse 31, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Right now, I am going to enter into my glory in some respect. Judas has gone out and the dominoes begin to fall as Jesus is hurried along toward the cross. The devil leaves, the devil is dismissed, and the glory starts to flow as he moves toward this grand event in the center of history. Not just the center and the culmination of his life, but of all of history for all of us. Jesus is glorified through the cross. This act of self-sacrificing where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, takes His perfect life and He offers it up as a sacrifice to save those of us who are not perfect, to give His life on behalf of many, to offer Himself that we might be cleansed. John 15, 13, a couple chapters later, we'll get to here shortly, Jesus tells these same disciples in this same conversation He says, greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. There's no greater love, he says. And this is exactly what Jesus is about. Jesus shows forth the great love of God, the great love of which there is no greater love, by the laying down of his life for his friends, for his disciples, for his people. And if if we have no greater love amongst ourselves, than to give ourselves and to spend ourselves on, on each other's behalf, then there is no greater love than the divine one, right? He who is before all time, in whom all time is created and, and exists, he who, who is God, who would come and offer himself. No greater love is than this, that, that God himself should lay down his life to create a people for himself, offering himself to create us, to create the church. So Jesus, as he moves toward the cross, he says, now is the Son of Man to be glorified. Why Why now? Because now has Judas gone out. Now has the first domino fallen. Now he moves toward the cross. And when he is glorified, we're told... In the next breath, he says, and God is glorified in Christ. The Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son. The Father is glorified in that the Father sent the Son. And as the Son completes and fulfills and finishes all that was planned from all eternity, before the foundations of the world, he predestined that we should be right, adopted as sons through the death of his Son, through Christ. The Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son. There in your bulletin under the first point. Again, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, Paul speaks of Him who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Of Him who did not spare His own Son. Right? It is hard for us. I mean, it's hard to express for a parent how we want to spare our children. As both of my children get married and move on in their life, there are a thousand ways in which we as parents, whether our children are little or whether they're, they're and both my kids are married as of last weekend, you know, that we want to spare them pain. We want to spare them trouble. We want them to listen to us so they won't repeat the mistakes. You know, we want them to have the benefit. You know, we want 
You know, and so there's this thing in us, and that's why we're so annoying, by the way, children, because we want to spare you, because we, you know, we think that the Father does not spare His own Son, but that He offers Him up for us all. No greater love has this than any man. Not only should give his own life, but that he should, he or the Father, should not spare his own Son. That salvation might come to us. Jesus willingly dies. That is part of His glory, but the Father does not spare His Son, and that is a great part of His glory. And these, these, these glories will be reunited again. I think that's what verse 32 is saying. Be reunited again. If God is glorified in the Son, then God will also glorify Christ in Himself. And He will glorify Him at once. In other words, He's going he's to bring Christ, He's going to bring the Son back into His own glory. The Father will raise the Son. The Father will draw Him back into the eternal glory of His presence. When Jesus, again, same conversation, the same night, John 17, verse 5, it's there. I told you, 17, the whole chapter is a prayer. And there Jesus prays and He says, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Right? Jesus will return to the Father's side. Jesus will reclaim that glory when it says that, that He emptied Himself and made Himself nothing. He laid aside His glory and His prerogatives as God in order to take the form of a servant to live and to die for us. And in this moment, He again glimpses and says, he, the Father's going to raise the Son and the glory that He had with the Father from before the foundations of the world. Their glories will reunite with redemption, salvation at the center. As it was in the beginning, so it will ever be. So in verse 33, Jesus tells them, as He speaks of this, this glory that's coming down the pike. And He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. There's a journey that I must take alone, and you're not going to follow Me down this road right now. But at this point, he begins to speak freely. You'll notice is in verse 31, it says, when he had gone out. I don't know if you have a red letter version or not. Uh, mine is a red letter. It's, it can be helpful. But you'll notice that after that, for the next like four chapters, it's almost all red. Right? Once Judas leaves and the devil is dismissed, he begins to speak freely and unrelentingly. He begins at this point to share as Judas leaves that, that, that which Jesus first is on his heart and comes out of his mouth as he speaks to these guys. He says, I'm going to reclaim my glory and I'm leaving you behind. And so he speaks of his glory, but he also speaks of us, of you guys, the, the church that my life and my death is creating. And what His great, greatest concern for us is. And I believe at the top of His list of concerns are His and His Father's glory. And the glory, their glory shown in their love for us, their redeeming love. And then how we live in and out of that with each other. As He moves in to this whole next statement. He leaves this community behind that is created and defined by the love that He has for us and what He is doing. 
And so he says, I give you a new command in verse 34. I give you a new commandment to love one another. Just as he said glory five times in the last two verses, he says love one another three times in these two verses. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. By this all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love one another. Three times as he nails it home in these sentences. A love so distinct. He says it will set you apart. The world will look on and say there's something different. They don't, they don't follow the drum of the rest of us. They're marching to the beat of a different drummer. You know, they're not, they're not living their lives in the same way that we are. They, they, they are disciples or followers of some other way of life, some other way of being. Love one another. You know, it's interesting. He says a new commandment I give to you, but you and I both know that's not a new command. It's not new. The opening pages of the Bible tell us that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are Old Testament commands. Right? See, it's a mistake that we make. I believe a mistake that a lot of us make is to think the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about love and grace. Where here, Jesus, again and again in his ministry, when he teaches on love, he does it by quoting the Old Testament. The Old Testament does sound a note of law, but driving it and underneath and motivating it is the love of God and the call to love. Some people will say, well, you know, what's new here then is, you know, we're not under law, but, you know, it's, it's the, I say the New Testament has as many laws or commands within it as the Old Testament does. You know, love one another. We're going to look at about 10 or 12 of them right here, but you stop lying to each other. Be kind to one another. Work with your hands with one another. Be generous. Be, you know, in the New Testament, that again and again, be pure, be holy, be right. All the things the New Testament stacks up. The law is there, but they say, yeah, but we're now under the law of love. Well, again, the New Testament says all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, these two Old Testament commands. What are they? Love your God, love your neighbor. Your brothers and sisters and your neighbors beyond, right? So the Old Testament law is motivated and, and upheld and driven always by the law of love. In fact, the law of love that is given there in the opening pages of the Bible is the underpinning of all the law. It hangs on it. And even in this verse, it's fascinating the combination between commandment and love, right? He says, I give you a command to love. Right? So there is this, this, what's new about it then? What's new about it, I believe, at this point, is the incarnation. What's new about it is Jesus. What's new about it is Jesus' life and the death that he's about to die and the resurrection that follows and the glory that follows is what's new about the commandment. The, the commandment, what's new about it is that Jesus has given it and He can say, as He gives it, love one another, Old Testament law, said that in the first pages of the Bible, you know, although He specifies it, He takes it just from neighbor and He does bring it home. But what's new about it is the as I have loved you. That's new. Love incarnate. Love in a body. God in a body. 
The God who gave those commands in the Old Testament and, and who loved and created a people and we're told that, that the coming of Christ and His death on the cross is the culmination of the love of God from, from throughout the Old Testament culminating in the life and death of Jesus. As I have loved you, Jesus, living with them together in community, walking with them, eating with them, sharing with them, all of life and interacting with them and capturing it in the Scripture for us, teaching them, Jesus loving them in very close quarters, in relationship. There in your bulletin under the second point, 1 Thessalonians 2, when Paul is writing back to the church in Thessalonica, he'd been driven out after uh, things went bad in town. And he writes back to the church and he says a lot of things to them. And he says, we, we were ready, 2.8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you have become so dear to us. Right? That's what God did. That's what God did in Christ. He was ready not just to send the gospel by some angel, not just to send some word from heaven or to write it in the sky, not just to drop a book in our laps from this thing. He says we were prepared to share not only the gospel, but God himself sharing his own self with us because we had become so dear to him because he loved us with an everlasting love. The center of Christian community then is not attendance, but it's the sharing of life. As God came and walked with us and has loved us, as I have loved you, so we love one another. We share not only the gospel of God, but our, ourselves as well, our lives as well, because we should be so very dear to each other. It means involvement. As I have loved you, gives not only the example of Christ saying, as I have loved you, but it also gives us the source and the power and the ability to love. Through the love that we have received. Were it not for the cross, we would have very weak and sentimental ideas about what love is. Like the world around us. It is flaky. The ideas of love that are out there as you see it in tried to be applied in marriages and as marriages disintegrate in the home and you see homes disintegrate in the things that we see throughout there, there are these weak and sentimental and flaky ideas of love. 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know, and IV says, by this we know what love is. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Here we get the picture of love radically, sacrificially loving. We have tasted the love of Christ and, and that taste has creates a people. Right? And he says, by this love that we're talking about, he says, all people will know that we are his disciples. That that's who we are. That we are defined by this relationship. They will know by the nature of the community that His death and His resurrection has created. Because what the Bible says, and it, it is, it's radical to me, and sometimes I don't think we capture the nature of it enough, that we understand that the, the radical nature of what Jesus says He created with His life and His death and His resurrection and the outpouring of His Spirit, that He's created a community, a new people, uh, a, a kingdom, a new kingdom that has a, a touch and a taste and a connection to the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, that is the first fruits of his spirit being poured out into the lives of a people, a kingdom. The Bible actually says we're a new race. You know, we're a new nation. It's a nation that doesn't have geographical borders. That's why we can send people to Mexico and to China and around the world to work with the church and know that, that we are a nation, but we're a nation without borders. We're a people. If you've ever gone to a church in another country in the immediate connection, as you get on your knees and worship the same God and love the same Christ and delight in the same gospel. A new people there under the last point, Colossians 3, 10 and 11. Colossians tells us, Paul says this, we have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here, where is here? Here, it's in this place where we're putting on the new self in the midst of this people who is being renewed in the image of their creator. Here where Christ is put on. Here where the image is being restored. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all Christ is all. All the boundaries dissolve and Christ becomes the defining issue. As he has loved, we love each other. You know, the Jews were religiously arrogant. They spoke of anyone who was outside as Gentile dogs. The Greeks were racist and culturally arrogant. Looked down on anyone who was not a Greek. In fact, the word for barbarian that we use is simply the Greek word for anybody who wasn't Greek. Right? Anybody who's not Greek is the barbarian. The Scythians were the worst of the non-Greeks. They were like the street gangs of you know, they were the most brutal. They were like the worst. They were, they were these guys. You know, and then he says there's neither slave nor free, the lowest socioeconomic strata of the poor and the powerless. The gospel dissolves all of it. All these barriers, when anyone believes into Christ, he enters into a new community, into a new race, a race not defined by ethnicity or by our race, or by our socioeconomic boundaries, or any other human barrier. 1 Peter 2.9 is here in your bulletin. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people. Racism is such a great evil because it denies the gospel, because it breaks the body, because it denies the power of the Holy Spirit and the nature of the love of God itself to reach all nations and to create one new man in Christ. It's a great evil because it is contrary to everything Christ-like. He says, we know we have passed from death into life. First John, same author, writing a letter. We know we've passed from death into life because we love the brothers. And we know what kind of brothers? Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, Jew, Greek. What does it look like? Let me just run down. I don't know how it happens where we get here to the end and I've, I've got 10 minutes worth of stuff and three minutes worth of time. So um, how do we know what this community looks like? And I think when he says that the world will look on us and they will see something so radically different. And we hear Jesus saying here that if you love one another as I have loved you, everybody's going to know. You hardly even have to say anything. I said, I want you to say something. Go and make disciples. But, but the world will know that you are different. You are servants of Christ. 
And how do we know? And I believe the rest of the New Testament, all the New Testament defines this for us. I think you read Paul's letters and you have half of the letters talking about how God was glorified in Christ, how he has loved us, and, 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 and he lays down all of the indicatives of who God is and what God has done and his everlasting love shown forth in Christ. And the second half says, this is how you love one another, as, as I have loved you. Whether it's the book of Ephesians split right down the middle or Romans split from 12 and 4, all of them take it and come around. And most of you have heard there is this set of, there's a Greek word, alelois, which means each other, you know, back and forth. And, and there's a series of verses throughout the New Testament that capture this idea if you love one another and you take that one another and look to see what does he say to, about one another. This may be tedious, but there it is. I'm going to do it very quickly. In your bulletin under the last point, Romans 15, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's what it looks like to love as he has loved us. He welcomed the tax collector. He welcomed the sinner. He welcomed from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is his glory. The way we love each other. And personality, love overcomes personality. I, I hear you. I'm an introvert. But love overcomes personality and bent and says we move out of ourselves and we move toward other people. That's what love does. Love moves out of itself and it moves towards other people for their sake. And it overcomes personality and, and, it, and it breaks us free from serving ourselves. Ephesians 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutually humble serving people. Romans 12, love one another with brotherly, brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Bearing with one another. Through love, serve one another. Use your gifts. Get your hands dirty. Get involved. Through love, love and serve one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir one another up toward loving good deeds. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. You ever been in a fellowship where those things were happening? I believe they are happening in the life of our church. But the bigger a church is, the smaller a church has to be. Is there a community where you are stirring one another up toward loving good deeds? I believe that those commands require small group. I believe those commands are hard to do in a big group. Those are commands to confess your sins one to another. Have you been in a group where people have been just brutally honest? And then people share with them and lay their hands on them and pray for them and encourage them and, and, and stir them toward the desire to, to repent and to seek Christ. To obey these commands, to experience this kind of community requires time. Why are we so busy? Why are we so unable to connect? What is it that, that is keeping us when there's this whole core of what Jesus says as he says he's going to his glory now, here's what I want you to do. Love each other radically and sacrificially. Get involved with each other. Let me close with a quick word about two changes that are going on because I believe one of the ways that we love one another is to prefer the needs of one another. There's Philippians 2 in your bulletin. It says, let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. You see the flow from, from you know, don't have to get your own way, but, but let go of your own way in order to serve and prefer the needs of others. He says, this is the mind of Jesus. 
This was his MO. This is why he lived and how he died. This is the way his whole life functioned. Have this mind in you that isn't about self, but is about loving and preferring others. I want to remind us of just a couple quick opportunities to do just that. By now you're aware there are a couple of changes taking place in the life of the church. One of them is that we're going to meet tonight at 5 o'clock instead of 6 o'clock. We moved everything forward an hour. This is something we've wrestled with for two or three years. We've heard some people saying, you know, it would work a lot better for us if we could start earlier. And, you know, and we talked to different folks. And finally, at the end of last year, we actually did a small group survey. As everybody finished up, we asked all the small group to fill out a survey and turn it in. We didn't get 100%, but we got a good return. And in those surveys, <clears throat> it was two to one to change the time back. Five o'clock, two to one. Of the third that weren't, they didn't say, there was about half of those that said they didn't care. And so there was about half of that third, and I, I don't do enough math to tell you what that is, <clears throat> that really wanted the time to stay the, cha- to stay the same. And as desperate as I am to please everyone, and I, and I am in many ways, uh, want to make, you know, to, to do things smoothly. It seemed that the tide had turned. And for many years, we've been meeting at a time that was less convenient for some and more for others. And now, as the tide has turned, it's, it's moved. And it seems that at least two-thirds of you ought to be more happy than, than you were and some others uncaring. Uh, and then a few of you are inconvenienced. And I simply ask you, let us love one another by embracing change. Um, by loving those this way. There are a lot of different options. You can meet in a home. There are still ways you can meet later if you're not tied to children's ministry, but talk to us and we'll see what we can do. The second thing is uh, changes in the choir that I would mention to you. Uh, If you haven't heard already, the choir for the fall is going to sing on the first and third of every month, meaning they're going to sing two Sundays uh, for the most part a month right now. And there are a number of reasons for that, but at, at the core of it is a conversation I was having with the old Josh, um, and now you went to your last Sunday here to get you in the foyer on the way out. In the reception, this is what you'll be talking about. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But we were having those conversations, and one of the things that he knew that a lot of other people don't know, that at least four of our core members of choir were stepping back this fall to take a break. You know, in a choir our size, that's a third almost. Of, of the choir, and there's been this thought of, of the potential that if we maybe did it less often, that more of you who have stepped back because of the high commitment might step up. That we do it less often, but we do it better and with more people, and to see, to see if we could bolster the numbers and keep some of those folks from stepping back if you didn't have to do it, and you did it every other week. And so, uh, new Josh is on board, old, old Josh seems to be on board as we have these conversations. It's something that we need to try for this fall. I know for some of you that's disappointing. For others of you, then uh, it, it doesn't matter. But here, here's what I would encourage you. Let's love one another. But not seeking just our own interests, but the interests of others. Let us love one another and seek to make what we do strong. The temptation will be to say, well, if it's not my way, then the highway. Right? Or the temptation will be to say, I don't like the way you're doing it, so I'm not going to do it. And my encouragement would be, let's, let's step in, let's get involved, let's make it strong, let's make it work, let's be involved and supportive. And um, I would encourage you, if you haven't sung in a while and you've been thinking about it, step up and see. It's only every other week now. Come, There's a meeting on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday. Josh is having a meeting for anybody who's already involved in the ministry, anybody who is thinking about it. Do you play an instrument? Do you sing? Are you thinking about it? Come to that meeting. We live in community. 
Living in community creates challenges. I, I always think, I always thought my, I, that I was easygoing until I had to live with people who were really different than me. You know, I, I really thought that I was gracious and humble until, you know, you do a discipleship project with a bunch of Christians at the beach, but you all have to live as families in the same house. And all of a sudden, living in community creates, you know, and the bigger the community, the more of that there is, the more the personalities and preferences and all this comes into play. But Jesus addresses us. It's interesting, the only place in the New Testament that I'm aware of, Jesus addresses us as little children. Little children, let us love one another. Little children, the, create, the community that he has created are the self-sacrificing death of Jesus. The community created by the common experience of God's love. The community created by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The community that is a new race and a holy nation and where loving one another is the proof of our discipleship and that we are not like the world that we are followers of Christ. And so we die to ourselves and we prefer one another and we love each other in radical and sacrificial ways. It's only through His dying love that we not only learn what love is, but we find the power to actually do it and to love one another. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that we love to get our own way. We confess that we love to be served. We confess that we are not good at laying down our rights and our privileges and our preferences and our desires and our expectations to serve you and to serve your people. Lord Jesus, would you come near? Would you continue to work within us that love with which you have loved us, that we would be set free to set the world on fire with a love that is radical and sacrificial. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.